0: chapters 11 and 12 of armageddon 2419 ad by philip francis nolan this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter 11 the new boss we had ultraphoned our arrival and the big boss himself surrounded by the council was on hand to welcome us and learn our news in turn, we were informed that, during the night, a band of raiding Bad Bloods, disguised under the insignia of the Altunas, a gang some distance to the west of us, had destroyed several of our camps before our people had rallied and driven them off. Their purpose, evidently, had been to embroil us with the Altunas, but fortunately one of our exchanges recognized the Bad Blood leader who had been slain. The Big Boss had mobilized the full raiding force of the gang, and was on the point of heading an expedition for extermination of the Bad Bloods. I looked around the grim circle of the sub-bosses and realized that the fate of America at this moment lay in their hands. Their temper demanded the immediate expenditure of our full effort in revenging ourselves for this raid. But the strategic exigencies, to my mind, quite clearly demanded the instant and absolute extermination of the Sensings. It might be only a matter of hours, for all we knew, before these degraded people would barter clues to the American Ultronic secrets to the Hans. How large a force have we? I asked Hart. Every man and maid who can be spared, he replied. That gives us seven hundred married and unmarried men, and three hundred girls, more than the entire Bad Blood gang. Every one is equipped with belts, ultraphones, rocket guns, and swords, and all fighting mad. I meditated how I might put the matter to these determined men, and was vaguely conscious that they were awaiting my words. Finally I began to speak. I do not remember to this day just what I said. I talked calmly, with due regard for their passion, but with deep conviction. I went over the information we had collected point by point, building my case logically, and painting a lurid picture of the danger impending in that half-alliance between the Sensings and the Hans of New York. I became impassioned, culminating, I believe, with the vow to proceed single-handed against the hereditary enemies of our race. If the Wyomings were blindly set on placing a gang feud ahead of honor and duty and the hopes of all America. As I concluded, a great calm came over me, as of one detached. I had felt much the same way during several crises in the First World War. I gazed from face to face, striving to read their expressions and in a mood to make good my threat without any further heroics, if the decision was against me. But it was Hart who sensed the temper of the Council more quickly than I did, and looked beyond it into the future. He arose from the tree-trunk on which he had been sitting. "'That settles it,' he said, looking around the ring. "'I have felt this thing coming on for some time now.' I'm sure the Council agrees with me that there is among us a man more capable than I to boss the Wyoming gang, despite his handicap of having had all too short a time in which to familiarize himself with our modern ways and facilities. Whatever I can do to support his effective leadership at any cost, I pledge myself to do." As he concluded, he advanced to where I stood and taking from his head the green-crusted helmet that constituted his badge of office to my surprise he placed it in my mechanically extended hand the roar of approval that went up from the council members left me dazed somebody ultraphoned the news to the rest of the gang and even though the ear flaps of my helmet were turned up i could hear the cheers with which my invisible followers greeted me from near and distant hillsides camps and plants My first move was to make sure that the phone boss, in communicating this news to the members of the gang, had not rebroadcast my talk, nor mentioned my plan of shifting the attack from the Bad Bloods to the Sensings. I was relieved by his assurance that he had not, for it would have wrecked the whole plan. Everything depended upon our ability to surprise the Sensings. So I pledged the council. And my companions to secrecy, and allowed it to be believed that we were about to take to the air and the trees against the bad bloods that outfit must have been badly scared the way they were burning the ether with ultraphone alibis and propaganda for the benefit of the more distant gangs. It was their old game, and the only method by which they had avoided extermination long ago from their immediate neighbors these appeals to the spirit of American Brotherhood, addressed to gangs too far away to have had the sort of experience with them that had fallen to our lot. I chuckled. Here was another good reason for the shift in my plans. Were we actually to undertake the extermination of the Bad Bloods at once, it would have been a hard job to convince some of the gangs that we had not been precipitate and unjustified. Jealousies and prejudices existed There were gangs which would give the benefit of the doubt to the bad bloods rather than to ourselves And the issue was now hopelessly beclouded with the clever lies that were being broadcast in an unceasing stream But the extermination of the sensings would be another thing in the first place There would be no warning of our action until it was all over. I hoped in the second place we would have indisputable proof in the form of their rep-ray ships and other paraphernalias, of their traffic with the Hans, and the state of American prejudice, at the time of which I write, held trafficking with the Hans a far more heinous thing than even a vicious gang feud. I called an executive session of the Council at once. I wanted to inventory our military resources. I created a new office on the spot, that of Control Boss, and appointed Ned Garland to the post, turning over his former responsibility as Plant's boss to his assistant. I needed someone, I felt, to tie in the records of the various functional activities of the campaign, and take over from me the task of keeping the records of them up to the minute. I received reports from the bosses of the ultraphones Unit, and those of food, transportation, fighting gear, chemistry, electronic activity, and Electrophone Intelligence, Ultrascopes, Air Patrol, and Contact Guard. My ideas for the campaign, of course, were somewhat tinged with my twentieth-century experience and I found myself faced with the task of working out a staff organization that was a composite of the best and most easily applied principles of business and military efficiency, as I knew them, from the viewpoint of immediate practicality. What I wanted was an organization that would be specialized, functionally, not as that indicated above, but from the angles of intelligence as to the Sensing's activities, intelligence to the Han activities, perfection of communication with my own units, cooperation of field command, and perfect mobilization of emergency supplies and resources. It took several hours of hard work with the Council to map out the plan. First we assigned functional experts and equipment to each division in accordance with its needs. Then these in turn were reassigned by the new division bosses to the field commands as needed, or as independent or headquarters units. The two intelligence divisions were named the white and the yellow, indicating that one specialized on the American enemy and the other on the Mongolians. The division in charge of our own communications, the assignment of ultraphone frequencies and strengths, and the maintenance of operations and equipment, I called communications. I named Bill Hearn to the post of field boss, in charge of the main or undetached fighting units, and to the resources division I assigned all responsibility for what few aircraft we had and all Transportation and supply problems I assigned to resources The functional bosses stayed with this division We finally completed our organization with the assignment of liaison representatives among the various divisions as needed thus I had a headquarters staff Composed of the division bosses who reported directly to Ned Garland as control boss or to Wilma as my personal assistant, and each of the division bosses had a small staff of his own in the final summing up of our personnel and resources, I found we had roughly a thousand troops of whom some three hundred and fifty were in what I call the service divisions, the rest being in Bill Hearn's field division. This latter number, however, was cut down somewhat by the assignment of numerous small units to detached service. Altogether, the actual available fighting force, I figured, would number about five hundred by the time we actually went into action. We had only six small swoopers, but I had an ingenious plan in my mind, as a result of our little raid on New York, that would make this sufficient since the reserves of Inertron blocks were larger than I expected to find them. The Resources Division, by packing its supply cases a bit tight, or by slipping in extra blocks of Inertron, was able to reduce each to a weight of a few ounces. These easily could be floated and towed by the swoopers in any quantity. Hitched to Ultron lines, it would be a virtual impossibility for them to break loose. The entire personnel, of course, was supplied with jumpers, and if each man and girl was careful to adjust balances properly, the entire number could also be towed along through the air, grasping wires of Ultron swinging below the swoopers or stringing out behind them. There would be nothing tiring about this, because the strain would be no greater than that of carrying a one or two pound weight in the hand, except for air friction at high speeds but to make doubly sure that we should lose none of our personnel i gave strict orders that the belts and tow lines should be equipped with rings and hooks so great was the efficiency of the fundamental organization and discipline of the gang that we got under way at nightfall one by one the swoopers eased into the air each followed by its long train or kite tail of humanity and supply cases hanging lightly from its tow-line. For convenience the tow-lines were made of an alloy of Ultron which, unlike the metal itself, is visible. At first these tails hung downward, but as the ship swung into formation and headed eastward toward the Bad Blood territory, gathering speed, they began to string out behind. And swinging low from each ship on heavily weighted lines, Ultrascope, Ultraphone and straight-vision observers keenly scanned the countryside while intelligence men in the swoopers above bent over their instrument boards and viewplates Leaving control boss Ned Garland temporarily in charge of affairs Wilma and I dropped a weighted line from our ship and slid down about halfway to the under lookouts that is to say about a thousand feet the sensation of floating swiftly through the air like this, in the absolute security of one's confidence in the inner Tron belt, was one of never-ending the light to me. We reascended into the Swooper as the expedition approached the territory of the Bad Bloods, and directed the preparations for the bombardment. It was part of my plan to appear to carry out the attack as organized originally planned. About fifteen miles from their camps, our ships came to a halt and maintained their positions for a while, with the idling blasts of their rocket motors to give the Ultrascope operators a chance to make a thorough examination of the territory below us, for it was very important that this next step in our program should be carried out with all secrecy. At length they reported the ground below us entirely clear of any appearance of human occupation, and a gun unit of long range specialists was lowered with a dozen rocket guns, equipped with special automatic devices that the Resource Division had developed at my request a few hours before our departure. These were aiming and timing devices. After calculating the range, elevation, and rocket charges carefully, the guns were left concealed in a ravine and the men were hauled up into the ship again. At the predetermined hour, Those unmanned rocket guns would begin automatically to bombard the Bad Blood's hillsides, shifting their aim and elevation slightly with each shot, as did many of our artillery pieces in the First World War. In the meantime, we turned south about twenty miles and grounded, waiting for the bombardment to begin before we attempted to sneak across the Han ship lane. I was relying for security on the distraction that the bombardment might furnish the Han observers it was tense work waiting but the affair went through as planned our squadron drifting across the route high enough to enable the ship's tails of troops and supply cases to clear the ground in crossing the second ship route out along the beaches of jersey we were not so successful in escaping observation a han ship came speeding along at a very low elevation we caught it on our electronic location and direction finders and also located it with our ultrascopes, but it came so fast and so low that I thought it best to remain where we had grounded the second time and lie quiet rather than get under way and cross in front of it. The point was this. While the Hans had no such devices as our ultrascopes, with which we could see in the dark, within certain limitations of course, and their electronic instruments would be virtually useless in uncovering our presence since all but natural electronic activities were carefully eliminated from our apparatus except electrophone receivers which are not easily spotted the hans did have some very highly sensitive sound devices which operated with great efficiency in calm weather so far as sounds emanating from the air were concerned but the ground-roar greatly confused their use of these instruments in the location of specific sounds floating up from the surface of the earth this ship must have caught some slight noise of ours however in its sensitive instruments for we heard its electronic devices go into play and picked up the routine report of the noise to its base ship commander but from the nature of the conversation I judged they had not identified it, and were in fact more curious about the detonations they were picking up now from the Bad Blood Lands, some sixty miles or so to the west. Immediately after the ship had shot by, we took the air again, and following much the same route that I had taken the previous night, climbed in a long semicircle out over the ocean, swung toward the north and finally the west. We set our course, however, for the Sinsing's land, north of New York, instead of for the city itself. End of Chapter 11 Chapter 12 The Finger of Doom As we crossed the Hudson River a few miles north of the city, we dropped several units of the Yellow Intelligence Division with full instrumental equipment. Their apparatus cases were nicely balanced at only a few ounces' weight each, and the men used their chute capes to ease their drops we recrossed the river a little distance above and began dropping white intelligence units and a few long and short-range gun units then we held our position until we began to get reports gradually we reined the territory of the sensings our observation units working busily and patiently at their locations and scopes both aloft and aground until Garland finally turned to me with a remark. "'The map circle is complete now, boss. We've got clear locations all the way around them.' "'Let me see it,' I replied, and studied the illuminated viewplate map, with its little overlapping circles of light that indicated spots proved clear of the enemy by ultrascope observation. I nodded to Bill Hearn. "'Go ahead now, Hearn,' I said. "'You place your barrage men.' He spoke into his ultraphone, and three of the ships began to glide in a wide ring around the enemy territory. Every few seconds, at the word from his unit boss, a gunner would drop off the wire, and, slipping the clasp of his shoot cape drift down into the darkness below. Bill formed two lines parallel to and facing the river, and enclosing the entire territory of the enemy between them. Above and below, straddling the river were two defensive lines. These latter were merely to hold their positions. The others were to close in toward each other, pushing a high-explosive barrage five miles ahead of them. When the two barrages met, both lines were to switch to short-vision range barrage and continue to close in on any of the enemy who might have drifted through the previous curtain of fire. In the meantime Bill kept his reserves, a picked corps of a hundred men, the same that had accompanied Hard and myself in our fight with the Han Squadron, in the air, divided about equally among the kite-tails of four ships. A final roll-call by units, companies, divisions, and functions established the fact that all our forces were in position. No Han activity was reported, and no Han broadcasts indicated any suspicion of our expedition, nor was there any indication that the Sing-Sings had any knowledge of the fate in store for them. The idling of rep-ray generators was reported from the centre of their camp obviously those of the ships the hans had given them the price of their treason to their race again i gave the word and Hearn passed on the order to his subordinates far below us and several miles to the right and left the two barrage lines made their appearance from the great height to which we had risen they appeared like lines of brilliant winking lights, and the detonations were muffled by the distances into a sort of rumbling distant thunder. Hearn and his assistants were very busy measuring, calculating, and snapping out ultraphone orders to unit commanders that resulted in the straightening of lines and the closing of gaps in the barrage. The white division boss reported the utmost confusion in the Sing Sing organization. They were, as might be expected, an inefficient loosely-disciplined gang and repeated broadcasts for help to neighboring gang. Ignoring the fact that the Mongolians had not used explosives for many generations, they nevertheless jumped at the conclusion that they were being raided by the Hans. Their frantic broadcasts persisted in this thought, despite the nervous electrophonic inquiries of the Hans themselves, to whom the sound of the battle was evidently audible, And who were trying to locate the trouble. At this point the swooper I had sent south toward the city went into action as a diversion to keep the Hans at home. Its kite-tail, loaded with long-range gunners using the most highly explosive rockets we had, hung invisible in the darkness of the sky, and bombarded the city from a distance of about five miles with an entire city to shoot at and the object of creating as much commotion therein as possible regardless of actual damage the gunners had no difficulty in hitting the mark i could see the glow of the city and the stabbing flashes of exploding rockets in the end the hans uncertain as to what was going on fell back on a defensive policy and shot their hell cylinder or wall of upturned disintegrator rays into operation That, of course, ended our bombardment of them. The rays were a perfect defense, disintegrating our rockets as they were reached. If they had not sent out ships before turning on the rays, and if they had none within sufficient radius already in the air, all would be well. I queried Garlin on this, and he assured me Yellow Intelligence reported no indications of Han ships nearer than eight hundred miles. This would probably give us a free hand for a while, since most of their instruments recorded only imperfectly or not at all through the death wall. Requisitioning one of the viewplates of the Headquarters ship and the services of an expert operator, I instructed him to focus on our lines below. I wanted a close-up of the men in action. He began to manipulate his controls, and chaotic shadows moved rapidly across the plate, fading in and out of focus until he reached an adjustment that gave me a picture of the forest floor, apparently one hundred feet wide, with the intervening branches and foliage of the trees appearing like shadows that melted into reality a few feet above the ground. I watched one man setting up his long gun with skillful speed. His lips pursed slightly, as though he were whistling, as he adjusted the tall tripod on which the long tube was balanced. Swiftly he twirled the knobs, controlling the aim and elevation of his piece then lifting a belt of ammunition from the big box which itself looked heavy enough to break down the spindly tripod he inserted the end of it in the lock of his tube and touched the proper combination of buttons then he stepped aside and occupied himself with peering carefully through the trees ahead not even a tremor shook the tube but i knew that at intervals of something less than a second it was discharging small projectiles which traveling under their own continuously reduced power were arcing into the air to fall precisely five miles ahead and explode with the force of eight-inch shells such as we used in the first world war another gunner fifty feet to the right of him waved a hand and called out something to him then picking up his own tube and tripod he gauged the distance between the trees ahead of him and the height of their lowest branches and bending forward a bit, flexed his muscles and leaped lightly, some twenty-five feet. Another leap took him another twenty feet or so, where he began to set up his piece. I ordered my observer then to switch to the barrage itself. He got a close focus on it, but this showed little except a continuous series of blinding flashes which from the viewplate lit up the entire interior of the ship. An eight-hundred-foot focus proved better. I had thought that some of our French and American artillery of the twentieth century had achieved the ultimate in mathematical precision of fire, but I had never seen anything to equal the accuracy of that line of terrific explosions as it moved steadily forward, mowing down trees as a scythe cuts grass, or used to five hundred years ago, literally churning up the earth and the splintered blasted remains of the forest giants to a depth of some ten to twenty feet by now the two curtains of fire were nearing each other lines of vibrant shimmering continuous brilliant destruction inevitably squeezing the panic-stricken sensings between them even as i watched a group of them who had been making a futile effort to get their three rep ray machines into the air abandoned their efforts and rushed forth into the milling mob i queried the control-bar sharply on the futility of this attempt of theirs and learned that the Hans, apparently in doubt as to what was going on, had continued to play safe and broken off their power broadcast after ordering all their own ships east of the Alleghenies to the ground for fear these ships they had traded to the sing Sing's might be used against them. Again, I turned to my viewplate, which was still focused on the central section of the sinsing works. The confusion of the traitors was entirely that of fear for our barrage had not yet reached them. Some of them set up their long guns and fired at random over the barrage line, then gave it up. They realized that they had no target to shoot at, no way of knowing whether our gunners were a few hundred feet or several miles beyond it. Their ultraphone men, of whom they did not have many, stood around in tense attitudes, their helmet phones strapped around their ears, nervously fingering the tuning controls at their belts. Unquestionably they must have located some of our frequencies and overheard many of our reports and orders. But they were confused and disorganized. If they had an ultraphone boss they evidently were not reporting to him in an organized way. They were beginning to draw back now before our advancing fire. With intermittent desperation they began to shoot over our barrage again, and the explosions of their rockets flashed at widely scattered points beyond. A few took distance pot-shots. Oddly enough, it was our own forces that suffered the first casualties in the battle. Some of these distant shots, by chance, registered hits, while our men were under strict orders not to exceed their barrage distances. Seen upon the ultroscope viewplate, the battle looked as though it were being fought in daylight, perhaps on a cloudy day, while the explosions of the rockets appeared as flashes of extra-brilliance. The two barrage lines were not more than five hundred feet apart when the sensings resorted to tactics we had not foreseen. We noticed first that they began to lighten themselves by throwing away extra equipment. A few of them, in their excitement, threw away too much and shot suddenly into the air. Then a scattering few floated up gently, followed by increasing numbers, while still others, preserving a weight balance jumped toward the closing barrages and leaped high, hoping to clear them. Some succeeded. We saw others, blown about like leaves in a windstorm, to crumple and drift slowly down, or else fall into the barrage, their belts blown from their bodies. However, it was not part of our plan to allow a single one of them to escape and find his way to the Hans. I quickly passed the word to Bill Hearn to have the alternate men in his line raise their barrages and heard him bark out a mathematical formula to the unit bosses. We backed off our ships as the explosions climbed into the air in staggered formation until they reached a height of three miles. I don't believe any of the Sensings who tried to float away to freedom succeeded, but we did know later that a few who leaped the barrage got away and ultimately reached New York. It was those who managed to jump the barrage who gave us the most trouble. With half of our long guns turned aloft, I foresaw we would not have enough to establish successive ground barrages, and so ordered the barrage back two miles, from which positions our curtains began to close in again, this time, however, gauged to explode not on contact but thirty feet in the air. This left little chance for the sensings to leap either over or under it. Gradually the two barrages approached each other until they finally met, and in the gray dawn the battle ended. Our own casualties mounted to forty seven men in the ground forces, eighteen of whom had been slain in hand to hand fighting with the few of the enemy who managed to reach our lines, and sixty two in the crew and kite tail force of swooper number four, which had been located by one of the enemy's ultrascopes and brought down with long gun fire. Since nearly every member of the Sensing gang had, so far as we know, been killed, we consider the raid a great success. It had, however, a far greater significance than this. To all of us who took part in the expedition, the effectiveness of our barrage tactics definitely established a confidence in our ability to overcome the Hans. As I pointed out to Wilma it has been my belief all along dear that the american explosive rocket is a far more effective weapon than the disintegrator ray of the hans once we can train all our gangs to use it systematically and in coordinated fashion as a weapon in the hands of a single individual shooting at a mark in direct line of vision the rocket gun is inferior in destructive power to the dis ray except as its range may be a little greater the trouble is that to date it has been used only as we used our rifles and shotguns in the twentieth century the possibility of its use as artillery in laying barrages that advance along the ground or climb into the air are tremendous the dis ray inevitably reveals its source of emanation the rocket gun does not the dis ray can reach its target only in a straight line the rocket may be made to travel in an arc over intervening obstacles to an unseen target. Nor must we forget that our Ultronists now are promising us a perfect shield against the disray and Inertron. I tremble, though, Tony dear, when I think of the horrors that are ahead of us. The Hans are clever. They will develop defenses against our new tactics, and they are sure to mass against us not only the full force of their power in America, but the united forces of the world empire. They are a cowardly race in one sense, but clever as the very devils in Hell, and inheritors of a calm, ruthless, vicious persistency. Nevertheless, I prophesied, the finger of doom points squarely at them today, and unless you and I are killed in the struggle, we shall live to see America blast the yellow blight from the face of the earth end of armageddon twenty four nineteen a d by philip francis nolan this book was performed by philip chenevere december two thousand and eighteen in baton rouge louisiana